Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. My guest today is Troy Paddock, and he is here to talk about but the post pre not post but pre world war 1 and what triggered world war 1 and of course it's more than just a shot of sarajevo and that's what we're going to talk about today and i'm i'm just curious what made you research not just world war 1 but pre world war 1 pre europe in that time and it was the world i just want just a real first question is why why did we call it the world war to end world, all wars when World War II came just a few decades after. Well, I'm going to say it was wishful thinking. They, they, they hoped that it would be the last war. Um, there is nothing, you know, there was nothing at the time that could assure them that it would be the end of the last war or that it would be the end of wars. And as you pointed out, just, you know, what, 18 years later? No, yeah. 20 years later, excuse me, you have, or 18 if you include the Japanese invasion of Manchuria, you know, 18 years later, there's a, you know, you have the second world war starting up. So. But, but yeah, what, right. what, I just, I, and I want to know uh, what, what made you research pre, before World War I, and, and what made you write the book that, if you could tell us a little bit about that. Sure, I mean, um, my, my training is in uh, modern European history with a focus on Germany. I'm especially interested in intellectual and cultural history. I'm interested sort of in the history of ideas and how ideas get disseminated. Um, I didn't start out wanting to be a historian of, of World War I, and I, I still don't know if I am. Um, I ended up writing, doing my doctoral research on German perceptions of Russia before the First World War. And um, this came out of reading an article by um, a very prominent German historian by the name of Ludwig Diho, who had written about Germany um, after World War II. And part of, and, and he had a line in one of his essays where he said, before the First World War, Germany didn't take Russia seriously as a threat. And that just struck me as wrong. And so I ended up doing more research. It was a seminar paper when I was in graduate school and I liked it enough and found it interesting enough that it became my doctoral thesis. And um, I eventually was able to turn that into a book. And part of what that did was look at the origins of anti-Russian propaganda in World War I. Yeah. And so that's how I became interested in World War I. Right. And, um, um, especially in propaganda. Um, what, can you tell me a little bit about the general historiographical conscious, if you will. Sure. Um, and what happened and how I you know, got onto this book was that um, a colleague of mine asked me to give a talk 
in January of 2014, sort of commemorating the centennial of the war. And as I got, as this gave me an opportunity to revisit some of the newer works. And as I explored this, I, I realized that I thought the general story needed to be refined. Um, the, general, <clears throat> the general view of the historiography of the First World Wars is pretty simple. It started out you know, with the Treaty of Versailles and this notion, Article um, 231, the War Guilt Clause, that the war was Germany's fault. Um, you know, it was the aggressor. You had then um, some people, even already in the 1920s, saying, no, it really wasn't Germany's fault. You know, everyone bears some blame, but Germany most of it. Um, then there's an interruption because of World War II. And um, after World War II, you st most people are still um, really interested in the Nazis. And you had a, a German historian by the name of Fritz Fischer wrote a couple of books that were really provocative because he's going to, while they're about um, Germany in the First World War, they're ultimately in in part also an explanation for why the Nazis come to power. Yeah, but he did something psychological about it too, you know, right? Where how did such a hateful group become world-leading power? And I think that's what's so fascinating about it. Like how, how people saw them saw them, I guess. Well yeah, and but so from the 1960s onward, really um, up through at least through the 1980s. Fisher and his students sort of dominated the discussion about the origins of the First World War as being really a war of German aggression. And um, you've had some dissenting voices and probably the most famous recent one is Christopher Clark, who wrote that book Sleepwalkers, um, which is, uh, was widely successful both academically and commercially. And he uses sort of a metaphor of sleepwalking and says, you know, Germany made deserve slightly more of the blame, but it's still really, it's everybody sort of sleepwalking into the war. Um, and it's an interesting um, thesis, but I don't think he goes far enough. And what happened as I was doing research for that talk that I mentioned, um, I came across the work of three different historians. One was a German military historian. Um, he's an American, but did German military history by the name of Terence Zuber. He was a really interesting man. Um, he was a retired army officer who ended up doing his PhD research in Germany. Yeah. And, and he wrote a book called um, Inventing the Schlieffen Plan. And he had the very sort of um, unprovocative thesis that there was no such thing as the Schlieffen Plan. And that caused you know, quite a kerfuffle in academic circles. And I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But, um, you know, if he's right, and I think fundamentally he is, um, you need to you know, rethink German war planning and what it meant. Um, the second book was by an American who's a historian of Russia by the name of Sean McMeekin, who wrote a book called The Russian Origins of the First World War. And he basically makes the argument there that World War I happened because Russia wanted it. Yeah. And then last but not least, you have a German historian of French history by the name of Stefan Schmidt, who writes about France's conduct during the July crisis. Which we'll, of seemed, course, we'll talk more about later as well. Yes. And, you know, it seemed to me is that these three people, when you put them together, are very interesting. 
um, you know, lots and lots of people have written about the First World War and its causes. And if you sort of think of it as a map, every time somebody wrote something, you sort of figure out where they fit on the map and you put them there. And when you do that with these three people, not too much happens. But my, it occurred to me that these three people, if you put the implications of their work together, you fundamentally need to redraw the map. You need a brand new map for this. And this is what my book actually tries to do is say, this is probably what the map should look like. And we need to do more research to flesh out this map a little more fully. Because I'm, I'm gonna make the argument that um, you can't give Germany the lion's share of the blame for the war. Um, they made plenty of mistakes, but you cannot call World War I a war of German aggression. Because if you look at what happened in, you know, in Europe in the summer of 1914, the question of why World War I is really two questions. One is why did Austria-Hungary feel the need to attack Serbia? And then the second question is why did that attack of Serbia turn into World War I instead of just a third Balkan war? Because the previous two years you had fighting on the Balkan Peninsula and those didn't turn into world wars. Yeah. Why did this one? Yeah, and uh, of course we, can you talk to me about the Fran France after the Franco, Apologies for this. Uh, the, the France after the Franco-Prussian War and the problems with using this war as a starting point. Sure. Um, I, I think you know the war, the Franco-Prussian War, which is the last of the wars of German unification, is often used as the starting point to try to explain how Europe ended up in World War One. Right. Now I think. Actually, I'll, I'll actually before you talk a little bit about this, I apologize for interrupting you, but sure, many, no many people may not know what is Prussia. Just briefly, what is Prussia? Because many of them may not know, many know Germany, but many may not know Prussia. So what is Prussia? Well, Prussia, Prussia is a, a, a German-speaking land in Central Europe. It was the dominant German state within German-speaking Central Europe. And that's, you know, that's the land of Frederick the Great and sort of um, the Hohenzollern monarchy. Right. And they, you know, in the 19th century, you had um, the rise of Prussia and they are challenging the Habsburg monarchy as sort of the dominant German power in Central Europe. And ultimately with the, um, first you have the Austro-Prussian War in 1866, um, and there's actually a war with Denmark before where you have Prussia and Austria against Denmark. We all know how aggressive the Danes are. Um, but um, you have a war against Denmark to liberate the provinces of Schleswig and Holstein from Danish rule, because they were technically Danish possessions before then. then Prussia and Austria get into a war ostensibly over the administration of Schleswig-Holstein. Um, Prussia defeats Austria and it has established itself as the dominant power in German-speaking Central Europe. Um, the speed with which it defeated Austria shocked virtually everybody and left Napoleon III, who was um, the emperor of France, of, um, with egg on his face because a strong new neighbor and potential threat was there. And Napoleon is sort of baited into a war by Bismarck. And that's the Franco-Prussian War, which again, the Germans win rather quickly and rather decisively. 
and that results in the unification of all the German-speaking states into one German empire. Was this when the French military kind of was starting to look at us as a joke, if you will? Um, I don't know if the, I don't honestly think the French military was looked upon as a joke, but certainly the pride that it had been resting on since the time of Napoleon um, needed to be reconsidered. Yeah. Um, it was clear that Prussia was the was the dominant land force, and now Germany was the dominant was the dominant land force. And but what happens in the historiography is you have the creation of this new state that sort of fundamentally upsets the balance of power. And if you look at it that way, then if Germany has upset the balance of power, then it's only a matter of time before there's a war. Um, the argument that I would have against that is, from my perspective, you have the same balance of power with Prussia becoming Germany. It's a stronger force, no doubt, but it's still essentially the same force. Right. Um, you didn't have to have an upset. The wasn't Germany at the time the cultural capital of the world, of Europe at least? No, not yet. Um, I would say, you know, in the 1870s, it's still probably Paris, unless you want to say it's London. Right. Um, you know, Germany is certainly, you know, by the end of the 19th century, um, Germany is a leading power in everything, you know, especially in industry and in education and in science. I don't, I don't know if it's ever considered the cultural capital of the world or, or even of Europe. It was very cultural, I think. If, if I, I don't think I read it in your book that it was very cultural. I mean, it, it's, it's, a very, it's a very cultural nation, um, but I think it, it's always viewed... Um, a step below London or Paris in yeah. terms of you know, in terms of culture. So, what caused the end of the Bismarck system? Um, the fact was that Bismarck created a very complicated system that only somebody as talented as Bismarck could handle. <laughs> and when but he what is, was the Bismarck system? Well, um, Bismarck's goal after German unification was he had two main goals. One was to keep France diplomatically isolated because he understood that the French were unhappy about losing the Alsace-Lorraine. Um, of course, the Germans would say they reacquired the Alsace-Lorraine, that Louis XIV had stolen them a couple of centuries earlier. But that's a, that's a different argument. Um, but that the France would want to reacquire, reacquire the Alsace-Lorraine. But then the goal on the East was to make sure that the Austrian Empire, or excuse me, the Austro-Hungarian Empire now, and the Russian Empire did not come to blows. And so that was, you know, the impetus behind the Three Emperors League. That was also the impetus behind the Reinsurance Treaty. Those were all designed to keep um, Russia and Austria from fighting each other. And the way the way he was able to do that was by promising that if either one attacked the other, Germany would not support them. So for example, Germany promised um, Russia that if Austria attacked Russia, Germany wasn't gonna support Austria. Austria is never going to attack Russia by itself. Right. So, and similarly, if Russia attacks Austria, Germany is gonna defend Austria. And so Russia would prefer to avoid that. 
So Bismarck's system, you know, more or less works. When he is forced out, um, William II, who is, to put it kind, impetuous, um, decides to let the reinsurance treaty lapse, which means there's no longer a treaty between Germany and Russia. This gives France an opportunity that it takes almost immediately. And you have the development of the um, Franco-Russian Entente. And this Entente is extraordinarily important because it gives France an ally that it needs. One of the things, and this I think is really one of the important aspects about Stefan Schmidt's book that doesn't get enough attention, is that French foreign policy was such that France could not achieve its foreign policy goals by itself. It needed allies. And so the important ally that it, that, that it needed more than anything was Russia. Yeah. And so you have, um, you, you have the Franco-Russian alliance. And this begins from the German perspective, the beginning of what they'll call the Ankleisung, the encirclement. But considering that France tried to invade Russia a few hundred years before, did did Russia see lightly on this, or did they? How did they feel about the, about after it's well known that Napoleon tried to invade Moscow when he when he was at his. So how did not Russia feel on the Franco, Franco France Russia France sorry, alliance? You know, keep in mind that's now eighty years earlier, ninety years earlier, so it was long enough ago that, you know, had they forgotten, you know, of course not. But one of the things that France brought to the table that Russia was interested in was money. Because France could provide loans to help, to help finance Russian industrialization. Right. And this, you know, this is, you know, in Russia's interest. And so what you see also see with this um, Franco-Russian alliance is you now have um, Europe's peace had in large part been kept by what was called the concert system. You know, after the um, Congress of Vienna, you had the five great powers. Um, you had England, France, Prussia, which is now Germany, Austria, and Russia. And they more, the peace was more or less kept by a consensus among those powers. But what you saw, you know, first with the German-Austrian alliance, and then, and then reinforced or maybe um, antagonized or emphasized, I guess, depending on how you want to look at it, with the Franco-Russian Entente, is you, you have the formation, the beginning of the formation of two sides. Yeah. And, and, these, and it's now these two sides sort of looking at each other. Um, and when England joined, England first has an alliance with France. In 1904, they're able to iron out their colonial differences and, and form an entente. And then France is able to help England um, negotiate an entente with Russia, which was extraordinarily important for England for reasons too we can get, um, for reasons we can get to in a moment. You now have, you know, the triple entente on one side on the other side, Italy has joined and there's a triple alliance, but Italy is always sort of a little brother in this. They're, they're, they're never really addressed or considered as equals by the German uh, and Austrian. Italy had just become a united country, right? It's, they haven't been a united country for long at this point either. 
No, no, just you know, less than 20 years longer than Germany, Italy had been united. So with the France and Britain alliance, was this the end of Britain's isolation? No, Britain's isolation actually st um, started a little earlier. Their first formal alliance was with Japan. Hmm. The reason um, Britain enters an alliance, I would argue, and British, and British diplomatic historians have, have made this argument, is that um, the British Empire had really expanded and extended as far as it possibly could. And it was having difficulty maintaining control over what it had. And one thing, the Boer War really showed the limits of British imperial power. And so what British started, what the British started looking for were allies who could help maintain the integrity of the British Empire. And this is what Japan could do. Japan and Britain had no competing imperial interests. And Jap and Japan's growing imperial interest in East Asia, or from the British perspective, you know, in the Far East, would actually play to Britain's favor because it would draw some of Russia's attention. Because um, Britain and Russia had antagonisms in Asia and in South Asia, you know, especially you know, um, north of India, you know, in, in, in what's now sort of India and Pakistan in that region, and then also in Persia. And so anything that could divert Russia's attention from Persia was a good thing. And ultimately Britain's alliance with Russia is designed to help alleviate pressure on the British empire in India. Right. And of course, everyone knows that Ottoman empire at this point was a sick man of Europe, but there, you also write, and I didn't notice that Austria-Hungary was looked at as the sick man of Europe. Why was this and why, why do you count them as the sick man, call them the sick man of Europe as well? Well, I suggest, and I'm, I'm certainly not the first person to do this, um, that Austria, you know, if the Ottoman Empire, you're right, was the sick man of Europe. But if there was a second sick man after that, it was probably the Habsburg Empire, in part because the... Um, um, the movement of nationalism, which was sweeping Europe um, in the 19th century, is going to hit um, Austria, Hungary, particularly hard. And in fact, that, you know, that the Austrian Empire became the Austro-Hungarian Empire is an example of just how hard, you know, and how powerful nationalism was as a force. And so you had, you know, not only had the Hungarians gained sort of co-equal status with, Aust with Austrian Germans within the empire. But you had Romanians and Czechs, to name two um, larger groups, who were also very interested in trying to attain the same kind of status that Hungary had. You also had Croats who were interested in doing this as well. And so these are all um, internal pressures within the Austro-Hungarian empire that made it very difficult for it to function. And it, um, you know, it's one of the reasons why, you know, even after the end of the Napoleonic Wars, um, Clemens von Metternich was, you know, a, a conservative politician who was very much against nationalism because he understood that nationalism as a movement would, would splinter the Austrian empire.
And that's exactly what it did. If you look at the map of Europe after World War I, um, you know, Germans will talk about the land they lost, but you know, a country that was really devastated by it was of course the Austro-Hungarian Empire. Right. And it was split up along the lines of nationality, you know, more or less. I, I realize there are lots of exceptions to that, but fundamentally speaking, um, you know, the, the dissolution of the Austro-Hungarian Empire was along national lines. And, th and this is what made the, um, the Austro-Hungarian Empire vulnerable, especially vulnerable in its southeastern corner where it had um, a, a Southern Slavic population that actually ends up getting larger with the annexation of Bosnia and Herzegovina, which we'll talk about later, I suspect. Um, and these, the, <clears throat> this, ma this makes the empire vulnerable. But if I remember correctly, they were bordered in Germany, right? So how was the German-Austrian relations like? Um, they were largely positive. I mean, they get along fairly well. I think after German unification, um, one, one of the good things that Bismarck did was after the Austro-Prussian War, the, the peace terms were very lenient towards Austria. So there wasn't the same kind of enmity towards Germany from, from Austria or towards pressure from Austria that you would have later from the French towards the United Germany. I think as we get closer to what will become World War One, there's a there's more and more tension. In part because Germany is just exploding economically. It is by the first decade of the 20th century, Germany is is the leading um, industrial power in Europe. It has surpassed Great Britain, and in some instances, it leads the world. In other instances, it's number two behind the United States. So it, it is an economic dynamo. Um, its universities are arguably the envy of the world. Um, it's a leader in science. Um, its military is vastly superior to the Austrian military. And so I think there's probably a little bit of resentment on the part of the Austrians thinking that their German cousins are a tad arrogant. And they were. But <laughs> If you're, it's also known that Hitler wanted a united Germany and Austria, but was there people that wanted this much then as well for how much as pre World War One, or was it just something they um, that Hitler wanted? See, it, no, it, it wasn't really a question. Um, you know, it was a question in 1848. You know, when you had the revolutions in 1848 and you had the Frankfurt Assembly, and you know. And part of the question was there, were you going to have a Kleindeutsch solution or a Großdeutsch solution? A Großdeutsch solution meant a united Germany of all of the German speaking lands under the leadership of the Habsburgs. A Kleindeutsch solution would be a, a union of all of the German lands excluding Austria under the leadership of Prussia. And if the, if the Habsburg Empire had been willing to renounce its non-German lands, it's, it's really feasible that you could have had a, an Austrian German emperor in 1848-1849. Um, and I'm, I'm sure this will come as a tremendous surprise to you, but the Austrian emperor was not interested in giving up territory. Yeah, makes sense. And so when, 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 the, when, it, when the Austrian delegates you know, had made it clear that the Habsburg Empire um, would accept a crown of United Germany, but not on, 
but it was going to keep its its lands that the liberal delegates who were very influenced by nationalism and the idea of a homogeneous German nation state, um, they reject that. And so then, even though you don't have unification that some of the members of the Frankfurt Assembly desired, you know, in the, during the 1848-49, one thing that was pretty clear was that if you if there was going to be a united Germany, it was going to be under Prussian leadership and it was going to exclude Austria. So there may have been peoples on both sides that sort of longed for a, a Großdeutschland, a united Germany, um, but it, it politically was not within the realm of possibility. So, uh... Tell me about the transfer system versus the versus the alliance system. Well, the concert system was the system that had largely been used to maintain the balance of power in Europe. And this is where the great powers would get together and mediate decisions. Now, this wasn't perfect. Um, certainly, the Crimean War is really the first big breakdown of the concert system, and you have um, Ally, you know, members of that system fighting, you know, supporting opposite sides. Um, but it still manages to largely um, stay in effect. Even, you know, you have the Russo Turkish War in 1878 that, um, you know, in some ways marks a comeback for the concert system because you have the great powers coming to the Congress of Berlin and forcing Russia to give up much of what it won during that war at the expense of the Ottoman Empire. Right. And you know, the concert system works really, I would, I would argue, all the way until the first Balkan War. Edward Gray's London Conference of 1912 is really, I think, the last successful example of the concert system in work. And this is where you have all of the great powers coming together and negotiating together. You know, and everyone gives up a gives up something in order for the greater good, which is, you know, peace in Europe as a whole. What you have with the alliance system is you now have sides. And the, and the difficulty with this is it was harder to compromise with two sides. Yeah, yeah. Much because it starts to be viewed as a, as a zero-sum game. Anything that helps the Entente is going to hurt the uh, alliance. Anything that helps the alliance is going to hurt the Entente. Um, and if in one of the paramount issues, and you see this very starkly during the summer of 1914, is the refusal of France and Russia to, for there to be even an appearance that the Entente, that there was any, any light separating the views of the members of the Entente. Right. So, so compromise what, becomes much more difficult. Right. And what was the first and second Moroccan crisis? What, what, does that, what does that have to do with triggering the First World War? Um, well, it has a couple of things. Um, but both Moroccan crises are, um, are crises, what they, what they have in common are a few things. One is the French start them. It's usually French action that is in violation of some sort of agreement that had been previously in place. That is the impetus. The second thing they have in common is that as that the Germans respond poorly. Um, you know, and what I mean by that is their diplomatic maneuvering um, is often quite clumsy. And 
the result of this is, you know, from the German perspective, is their poor diplomatic handling of this ends up making the Franco-British Entente stronger. I, um, it had been the hopes of the German Foreign Office that if they played their cards correctly, they could make that alliance weaker or that uh, that Entente weaker, um, but they failed. And so, um, what's important about that is that it makes that alliance stronger, and you know, Germany looks looks bad, you know, on on the international stage, um, and not not bad in the sense like they wanted to start a war, and the British and French prevented it because that's not the case. You know, neither the British nor the French really thought Germany was interested in a war at that time. Um, although, you know, there were certainly I'm sure parties in, in the public sphere who would advocate war, but the, the officials did not. Um, one of the interesting things about the first Moroccan crisis is that it is um, in part what um, inspires a soon to be retired chief of the German general staff, um, Schlieffen, to write this memorandum that will later become known as the Schlieffen Plan. Now, what the, what the plan is, and it's it's I would argue, and here I am I am borrowing freely from Terence Zuber. These are these are his ideas, and I find them convincing. That um, you know, it the document that's laid out as a plan is not a plan. Um, more than anything, Zuber will argue that it's an argument that's made by a retired general. And he, he is retired when he writes this. He post-dates it or backdates it, excuse me. So to have the stamp of when he was still in power, but he actually composed it after. Um, but this is, a, this is a, a design that would talk about what it would take for a German invasion of France. And I, I want, there, there are lots of things that can be said about this plan, but I think a number of people could send, say them better than I can. And I also think for the larger questions that we wanna talk about, they're not important. Um, I, but I wanna make two points that I think are important. One is this, this document that Schlieffen created included a number of what are called ghost armies. That means you know um, groups of men that were there on paper, but had no physical counterpart. Meaning, you know, literally meaning Germany did not have enough men in the military, including reserves, to execute this plan. I think that's important um, because I don't think any military man seriously proposes a plan that they don't have the men to execute or that they don't have the equipment to execute. Right. That's the first thing. The second thing is that this is that this is a plan for a one front action there is no eastern front in the so-called schlieffen plan this is all what germany is doing on its western front and so the idea that this that you know from 1904 1905 germany had this plan for a two-front war and they were just waiting for the right time to execute it is fundamentally mistaken. And if you look at a lot of Schlieffen's military um, um, war games and exercises, they're they are done as counterattacks, meaning that they're anticipating a French attack rather than initiating a German attack. 
So you think historians have misunderstood the term, the plan? Is that what you think, or looked at um, the wrong way? Well, I th um, I think there are a lot of things. Um, one is the historiography of the Schlieffen plan itself takes a life of its own after the First World War. Because um, you had people who, um, you know, Schlieffen is dead before the war even begins. Um, Helmut von Molke the Younger, who was, um, you know, the nephew of the great Helmut von Molke, of, who was part of, who was the general for the wars of German unification, um, is in charge, but he has a nervous breakdown and he, he is replaced and he also dies before the end of the war. Um, and what you have are generals who were part of the general staff, um, you know, military men who were part of the general staff who are trying to explain Germany's defeat. And the argument they will use is that, you know, Schlieffen had a good plan, but Molka messed it up. And it's in part, they're trying to cover, protect themselves. Right. Um, and to justify, you know, their own positions. Um, what's interesting is Zuber in his work shows how some of these, the, some of the people in the general staff um, actually their conduct during the war on the Western Front goes against Schlieffen's own planning and sort of you know principles for for combat. And so you could you could say if you really wanted to sort of push the sense of irony, if there was a Schlieffen plan, the people who violated it were not Moltke, but rather some of these other students, some of these other generals. But the the other, but the general defend the, these generals defending you know the Schlieffen plan, also plays into the Allies who want to make the argument that you know Germany bears the responsibility for the war, and I understand this argument, um, especially in in the English speaking world, because for for the Anglophone world, you know, World War One is the Western Front, and it begins with the invasion of Belgium. The difficulty is World War I doesn't begin just with the invasion of Belgium. You also have the Rus Russian invasion, invasion of East Prussia, and you have Austria invading Serbia. So you have a number of simultaneous military actions. And the focus, uh, and if you keep the larger picture in mind, I think the narrative changes. If you focus only on the Western Front, then you have a different story. And I think a lot of English historians have focused on the Western Front because it serves their purpose. Yeah. It serves them in, in the sense that they make Germany the bad guy, you mean? They make Germany the bad guy and they also it also justifies their own involvement in the war. Yeah. But I and I say I'm so I like I like to think alternative history a little bit sometimes, and a lot of people think that if they had was there was, was there any other way for them to go to, to to France outside of Belgium, or was that was that the only way? Um, you know, it's not the only way, but it's the, it would have been the most efficient way because you know along the French German border there are more fortifications. Yeah. Um, it, it would have been a much bloodier, drawn-out fight. So, uh, so what was the 1908 annexation of Bosnia and Herzegovina? Can you tell me a little bit about this part? Um, 
This is important for a number of reasons. One is that how it plays out um, permanently poisons Austrian-Russian relations. Um, so that's important. Um, but it also gets, um, I think, misportrayed a lot in the, especially in the English speaking world. Um, and I don't know in Norway what you learned about it or how you learned about it. Unfortunately, not much. <laughs> but um, what um, I mentioned that the, the um, Russo Turkish War earlier that ended with the Treaty of Berlin in 1878. Um, this is important because one of the provisions of that treaty were that the Austrian Empire was given um, protectorate status over Bosnia and Herzegovina. They were still technically part of the Ottoman Empire, but Austria-Hungary had administrative control over them. And it was understood um, that at some point, um, the Habsburg Empire would be able to incorporate them into the Habsburg Empire, sort of formally annex them. Um, so that's, that's an important background. Um, the Russian foreign minister, and I'm going to say his name poorly, Izvolsky, um, approaches Arenthal, who is the Austrian foreign minister, and suggests that um, the following deal, that Russia will recognize the Austrian annexation of Bosnia-Herzegovina, and in return, Austria will support Russia having free access through the Bosporus and Dardanelles Straits. So effectively connecting the Black Sea to the Mediterranean Sea, which was important not only for Russian trade, but much more importantly for the Russian Navy. And so Austria says, sure, we'll do this. And there's a little bit of haggling, but then Austria announces that it's going to do this, that it's going to annex. And there's this cry of outrage, especially from the Serbians. Why? Who are Why did they want to annex? Pardon? Why? Why did they want to annex uh, the deal? Um, well, it's it's the closest thing that Austria can get to an imperial colony. Uh, you know, if when when you in, if 1908, if you're looking at a world map, um, Austria is the only great power that doesn't have land anywhere else. Yeah, um, you know, um, some some you know fairly intelligent you know Austrian historians have have made the argument that you know the annexation of Bosnia Herzegovina was essentially you know an Austrian imperialist adventure. This was a way to boost the prestige and the status of the Austrian Empire. Yeah. Um, but now. Russia, by doing this before Russia had been able to secure its half of the gold, leaves Russia with a little bit of egg on its face. Um, what's interesting about this, from my perspective, is that the only thing that genuinely prevented Aus um, Russia from gaining its goals, which was, you know, to access through the Turkish Straits, was, was England. Great Britain, even though it even though it had recognized, you know, some years earlier that eventually Russia was going to have to be granted access through these through the Turkish Straits, refused to negotiate on this issue. So what's interesting to me is that Russia's um, diplomatic partner, Great Britain, 
is actually the one that prevents Russia from achieving its diplomatic objective. And, you know, Austria never, um, Austria threatens, but never actually makes public at the time, the fact that there were secret negotiations between Russia and Austria about all of this. Because if they had, this would have caused Russia a great deal of difficulty, both domestically and in the Balkan Peninsula, because Russia had always fancied itself and projected itself as the protector of the Slavs. And here it was selling out some Southern Slavs for its own interest. And in this particular case, not even gain, gaining anything from it. And so this is what puts um, a wedge between Austria and Russia. But of course, what it also does is add a significant Serbian population to Austria. So making the, you know another much larger ethnic minority within Austria many of whom are very unhappy to be there and would much rather be part of an independent Serbia, which is just across the border. Right. So did I answer your question or is yeah, there something? I think I did. Okay. So uh, you, we mentioned this earlier, you mentioned this earlier, and uh, why, did it, uh, why did Italy want to go to war with the Ottoman Empire? And why did not this start the First World War instead of uh, the, the, the Belgian, the, the other nation. Sorry, I forgot the name. See. I don't know. Okay. Freeze, I'm right there. Um, Why did not this trigger the First World War? Um, it, it wasn't on a large enough scale, I think. Um, I mean, what Italy did essentially was um, the, the second Moroccan crisis was France moving into Fez and you know demanding certain rights. Italy essentially makes the same demands of Tripoli. Right. Um, and when the Ottoman Empire refuses to accede to those demands, Italy declares war. Um, and this war um, goes fairly quickly in Italy's favor. Um, but what this war also does, and this is important, is it gives um, the Southern Slavic states, and actually more than just the Southern Slavic, the Balkan states, which had formed a, a, their own alliance, the Balkan League. Yeah. Um, this war with the Ottoman, Ottoman Empire also gives them an opportunity to declare war on the Ottoman Empire. But this triggered the Balkan War. Yeah, and this triggers the First Balkan War. So you have... Um, the First Balkan War helps, you know, ensure that the the um, Tripolitan War, the um, Italian-Ottoman War, is going to be resolved fairly quickly and also much to the detriment of the Ottoman Empire, because it's now fo it's focusing much more on what's going on in the Balkan Peninsula. And here you have Edward Gray step in. Um, and who was Edward Gray? Edward Gray was the British Foreign Minister. Um, he steps in and proposes, you know, the London Conference which is a way to bring the great powers together and um, they're able to help resolve um, to, at least to the satisfaction of the great powers, obviously not to the satisfaction of the Balkan nations, an end to the first, to the first Balkan war. And Turkey loses a, a fair amount of land um, as a result of that. However, the, the Balkan nations, you know, especially Serbia and Bulgaria, 
were not happy with what they got out of it. And so Bulgaria immediately attacks. And now you have the second Balkan War. And it's basically Bulgaria against everybody. <laughs> the Bulgarians lose. And that, um, but that war also um, enhances Serbia um, because Serbia makes territorial gains at the expense of Bulgaria. And this also increases Serbia's appetite and ambitions. Now, Serbia is, is not inclined, you know, Serbia has ambitions, but it does not have delusions. Serbia knows that it cannot declare war on, Austro on the Austro-Hungarian Empire and have any hope to win. It knows it can't do that. Right. But it does, it does hope that it can perhaps gain Russian support um, to protect it from further Austrian encroachments. The Ottoman Empire hopes for Russian support? No, 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 the Serbian Empire oh, right. yeah, yeah, yeah. for Russian support. Yeah, yeah, And that, and I think that brings us to the shot in Sarajevo. As we saw, it was, has seen there's already been some tension in Europe, some minor wars going on. So what made, made so I forget the guy's, his name. But first, Archduke Franz Ferdinand was shot it. by Gavrielo Princip. So what, um, what, what, how did that trigger the war? Um, well, it doesn't necessarily have to trigger the war. Um, it was, it was bad planning on the part of the Austrians for him to visit Sarajevo on a national holiday. It was um, Vidovan, which is some, um, which was commem commemorating the Serbian loss to the Turks um, somewhat. I can't do the math in my head. I'm too tired. But uh, and it's not quite. Yeah, it's more than 500 years earlier. I think 400 or 500 years earlier. Um, and so having the Habsburg heir to the throne visit Sarajevo is just sort of a reminder to um, the Serbs there that they're still not free. That they're still under sort of imperial control. Um, but um, um, Princip and some others had been recruited and helped trained by. Um, by Serbians, by Serbians, by and were supplied and aided by Serbian government officials, and they trained them, helped smuggle them in with weapons back over the border into Austria to carry out the assassination attempt. Now, why it becomes the First World War? Um, it's um, I. I, I don't have a great answer for you, to be honest. Um, I think I don't know if anyone has a great answer. Um, you know, it was just Austria, an excuse to invade. Um, Austria, Austria thinks the only way that they can gain satisfaction is to break Serbia. Um, they they make it clear fairly early on they're not interested in annexing Serbia. The last thing they need to do is annex more Serbs into the Austrian Empire. But it's quite clear that a strong Serbia is a threat to their, st their stability. So they need to break Serbia. They also know that they can't act alone because they're concerned, even though there's not a formal alliance between Serbia and Russia, that Russia considers itself a protector of Serbia. And there's a good chance that it would get involved. Because the other concern that the Russians would have is that if Austria gains too much power and influence in the Balkan Peninsula, 
they could be the ones benefiting more at the retreating and receding Ottoman Empire. And you know, the last thing they want is the Ottoman Empire losing control over the Straits just to have Austria take over the Straits. Right. So, um, one of the first um, one of the first things that Austria does is um, send an envoy to Germany to talk to them. And this is this is when you have the famous blank check issued. You know, first by Wilhelm II, and then you know, agreed to also by Bettmann Holweg, who is the German Chancellor. That and the blank check is essentially what it what it says it what it sounds like. Germany said it would support Austria no matter what it decided. Now, I've, there are a couple of assumptions there that I think um, don't get talked about that merit keeping in mind. One was the assumption that Austria was going to act fairly quickly. It did not. Um, the other assumption is that there would be more communication with Berlin from Vienna than there actually was. Um, and there was not. So during, um, during this time, Austria you know, wants, wants to plan a military action, but they can't act right away because they've, they've learned that segments of the Austrian military are actually on harvest leave because you know they're peasants. They've been given release time to go back and help with the harvests on the farms. And they can't call them back because that will alert people that the Austrian army is planning a military action and they want to try to have the element of surprise. So they cancel any further leaves, but they have to wait for the rest for the people who've been granted leave to come back. And in the meantime, they're they're negotiating just what they're going to do. And they decide to send an ultimatum to Serbia. Now, what's important, there are a couple of things important about this ultimatum. While the Austrians had hoped it would be secret, it wasn't. Um, and now I wish I remembered date, the date and I can probably find it. Um, but I wanna say by the 16th, and it may have been sooner, but by the 16th of July, um, virtually all of the European capitals were aware that Austria intended to send a very strongly worded ultimatum to, um, to Belgrade. Now, this is important because this means the previously scheduled trip that um, Poincaré, who was then the president of France, was making um, to St. Petersburg, that meant by the time he arrived in Petersburg, the, um, the intention of the ultimatum was, was, known in, was known in Petersburg. And they were able to discuss what was um, the ultimatum and how they would coordinate their response. This is important because um, the historiography about this has largely treated France as sort of a passive actor during the July crisis. And this is why Stefan Schmidt's book about the July crisis in France is really so important, is um, he demonstrates really without a doubt, other people had talked about it and you know, had acknowledged this, but he really demonstrates it. There's no doubt that French officials in Russia discussed with their Russian counterparts um, how they would react to um, the Austrian note. 
and you know their reaction was to condemn Austria and to support Belgrade. Um, the historiography had said, well, you know, the French didn't know about it because the note wasn't made formal, wasn't released until after the French had gotten back on their ship and were heading back, you know, and telegraph service was intermittent. And so they didn't know what was going on while all of this was unfolding. And that's just not true. And um, the, Fr um, the French and Russians were very much operating on the same page from the same playbook regarding how to handle Austria in the, during this diplomatic crisis. And they refused to acknowledge Austrian evidence that there was Serbian support behind the assassination attempt. Right. Well, and that brings us to the July crisis. And what, what was the July crisis? It's, every, it's everything that I've been talking about since the assassination of Franz Ferdinand and his wife. Um, you know, the events, the diplomatic events that occur from, you know, the end of June through the month of July if was, uh, right are, are, are collectively referred to as the July crisis because um, tensions. And so, um, you know, Austria had, it has issued its ultimatum. Russia has, or even before Serbia has turned over its response to the ultimatum, which is really um, a diplomatic masterpiece. The Austrian response is, is a diplomatic masterpiece. Um, but the Russia has already begun its preparations for mobilization in secret. Um, and while the, the ultimatum had been written with the intention that Serbia would reject it, because Austria said it was a take it or leave it. You have to accept everything. If you don't, it means war. Well, may, um, most of the points the Serbians accepted, and a couple of them, it didn't. They didn't accept, but they didn't explicitly reject. So you could almost you could read this and get the answer that you wanted to. When Wilhelm II saw the saw the Serbian response, he thought everything was solved. Right. So. Uh, no, he was not there encouraging Austria to go to war. Um, but what happens is that Russian mobilization continues um, and Austria, Austria has rejected the Serbian, um, the Serbian response and has made its intentions clear that it is going to declare war on Austria. Excuse me, that it's going to declare war on Serbia. Um, Russia is continuing its mobilization Austria is getting ready to prepare its mobilization. And it is during this time that you have the famous Willy Nicky telegrams. Do you know about these? No. Um, well, William II and Nicholas II um, send each other some last minute telegrams. And what's really interesting, they're called the Willy Nicky telegrams because they're written in English, um, because they're cousins. They both, they share a grandmother, Queen Victoria. Um, and so it's, it's, it's fun for American students to look at these telegrams and realize that, you know, the German Kaiser and the Russian Tsar are writing each other in English. Um, they, they think it's pretty neat. Right. Um, didn't, Russia, didn't Russia get you to get Prussian princesses to be the yes. queen? 
as well? <laughs> yes, they often did. In fact, Catherine the Great was a German princess. Um, and I think this brings to an end for the podcast. Thank you so much for coming. Before we go, do you, do you have anything to wish you wish to promote? Your, your book, where, where can people buy your book, if you will? Um, well, the book's just coming out in paperback, which I'm grateful for because it means it's significantly less expensive. It's just called Contesting the Origins of the First World War and Historiographical Argument. Um, and the argument is that, you know, if you're looking for the cause of why the, um, why the Austrian invasion of um, Serbia is not the Third Balkan War, but a First World War, the answer is really because Russia and France wants it to be. Because Russian mobilization is not just towards Austria, but towards Germany and Austria. Right. And, and that plays a role. You know, in school, you usually learn that it's just, at least where I'm from, we learn that this just, uh, the shot, it's the shot in Sarajevo, you know, just not a basic, but as you grow older and you study history more, you learn that it's so much more than just a shot in Sarajevo. And that's what I find really interesting, personally. It, it is really interesting. Um, I, I think so too. And you know, and I realize we've run out of time, but there's a lot about sort of British diplomacy and all of this too, that is, you know, to put it politely, um, duplicitous. Yeah. Um, you know, Gray is not honest to his own cabinet about the promises that he has made to France in the past um, that also play a role in all of this. Another, th another thing I would like to say, I, I, I don't know if you read the book, The Rise and Fall of Third Reich with, by William L. Schreiber. Many years ago, but yes. Uh, but what, what I found surprising is, again, I will mention back in school, we learned that Germany caused a lot of chaos, chaos in Austria, which is, again, true. And then they just invaded. But there was a surprise. What surprised me when I read the book is that it was also a lot of diplomacy. That is so much diplomacy before going to war. It's not just go to war, it's more, so much diplomacy going on. And and that, that's uh, I found most surprising and interesting when I've learned read a book as well. Well, th th um, think about it this way. I mean, I remember um, Clausewitz, the famous Prussian general, when he um, said that you know war is politics by other means. Yeah, that's exactly. essentially what that's essentially what you're seeing. You know, yeah. you you try to achieve things first by diplomacy because it's it costs less. Yeah, but if you can't achieve what you want by diplomacy, then you are sometimes achieve it by going to war. Whether or not that's right or not, of course, is an entirely different question. And of course, last, do you have any social media where people can find you if you wanted to put in the description, if, if you will? You know, I have no social media profile. I'm on Facebook. If people want to find me there, that's fine. But um, I don't, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lousy self-promoter. That's okay. Um, this has been World That Aged Well. You have heard the episode about what led up to the First World War. My guest has been Troy Paddock. And uh, you can find us on Instagram at World That Aged Well, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you can find podcasts. We also are on YouTube, World That Aged Well. Episode coming out at Tribe every Thursday. Thank you so much for listening. Please like, share, and subscribe. And I'll see you all next time. Thank you very Thanks much. Thanks for having me. Take care. No Thank you for being here.